A few years ago, I went to visit a, my old friend and mentor, Phil Potter, and Phil Potter is a trustee of this church, so he pops in here every once in a while. Um, and, and I often sort of went to actually see him, and I had great times with him. We talked about loads of stuff, um, family and work, and, but we also talked about the church, national church, about where it was and, and its direction of travel, often. And at that time, Phil was working in a senior national post in this country, and, and he met loads of, sort of very senior church leaders of our denomination and others across this country and across the globe, in fact. And he said in this role, he said, you know, you know we think that the church in general is not doing very well. He said, do you know what? It's worse than that. And then he sat there, and this is not like Phil at all, he sat and he leant back in his seat and he looked up at the ceiling and he said in a kind of dreamy kind of way, he said, I wonder if it's too late. I wonder if we are, as a church, being taken into exile as in the Old Testament. I wonder, he said, if it's too late. And every once in a while, the history of God's people, the prophets, the visionaries, the burdened ones, those people who see clearly and who despair at what they see, every once in a while they look at the landscape and they wonder if it's too late. And Ezekiel 37 is definitely one of those times. This vision of um, Ezekiel probably occurred about 580 BC, about 15, 20 years after Judah's exile into, into, into Babylon. And there's no doubt at this stage that God's people would be thinking, it's too late. It's over. We are finished. We have been defeated in battle. The Babylonians are, are too great and powerful for us. You know, we have, you know, we are just a fraction of a hundred thousand exiles from loads of different countries scattered across this huge empire. We are, we've been abandoned by God. We, we, we're alone. We're exhausted, discouraged, impoverished. Israel was as good as dead. And the power of this vision begins because of what um, Ezekiel sees on that plane as he looks out in Ezekiel 37 is not simply a bunch of dead bodies. And to really get this, we have to understand how the, how the ancient Israelites um, buried their people. Um, you know, when somebody died, they were placed in a family tomb in, in one of a number of, of, of different sort of... Um, um, holes, basically chambers, that were dug out of this family tomb. It looked a bit like this. And this dead body was left in there for ages. And then after a long time, the family opened up this tomb and went in and looked at this dead body and, and checked to actually see if it was desiccated, which basically means dried up. All the sort of skin and the tendons and the sinews, all of it gone, dry. And they would check and see that these bones were really dry, as it says in verse 2 really dry. And these bones, if they were really dry, were, were picked up and put in a big kind of communal sort of coffin. All the other people who had died in this family, a big jumble of bones and skeletons all piled up together. And, and the point of this vision of Ezekiel in chapter 37 is everyone who heard this vision knew exactly what he was talking about. And they knew two things. And the first one was really obvious, was that everyone was dead. You know, the whole family, the whole family of God was completely dead. This plane that Ezekiel saw was basically a massive communal coffin. And the second thing they knew is that they had been dead for ages. 
Those bones were dry, verse 2, he says, really dry. They weren't bodies that had just um, been placed in the grave and, and you know, hardly turned cold. They were God's family, God's people, long dead. Everyone was dead. And so long dead, you could barely put a skeleton together, never mind a living body. And then the remarkable, astonishing, mind-blowing thing happened. Out of skeletons, living bodies. Out of, out of a, through dry bones, a vast army from a jumble of a communal skeleton pot, basically a vast army of living people showed up. And how did it happen? It happened because of the Spirit of God. This is the story of Pentecost, of, of Acts 2, of God's Spirit being placed in humans and they come alive. Verse 14 says, I will put my Spirit in you and you will live. Nothing happens without that. The grace and power of God through his Holy Spirit is the breath of life. It's the agent of change. Nothing else works apart from it. It's the animating presence of God himself. And here is the obvious but crucial lesson for God's people. What is dead cannot stay dead in the presence of God's Spirit. Where God's Spirit resides, what was dead becomes alive. And when Jesus was physically raised from the dead, it wasn't just a sign that the grave couldn't hold him, even though it was. It was a sign of what happens in the presence of God's Spirit. And this is not just a sign for us of what is coming in a future day, although it is, of course it's that, but it's a sign of what we live in today. And as the bishop and author Tom Wright once wrote, the intermediate stage between Jesus' resurrection and the renewal of our whole world is the renewal of human beings, you and I. I'm just going to say it again. It's so simple, but so remarkable. The intermediate stage between Jesus' resurrection and the renewal of the whole world is the renewal of human beings, you and I. What is dead cannot stay dead in the presence of God's Spirit. When we invite God's Spirit into our lives, he brings renewal. He brings what is dead back to life. That's what he does. That's what he does. My friends... What is or appears to be dead in your life? Is it your spiritual walk? Your walk with God, which for some of you listening, you will know this, has been growing colder and colder and colder. And maybe it feels like it's dead completely. Is it your faith that's battered by doubts and trials and suffering and unanswered prayer? Is it your sense of purpose, seeking a meaning for your life and that appears to have no meaning? Is it a relationship, a marriage or a key friendship that is cold and distant, appears dead and beyond repair? Is it your freedom? Are you trapped in guilt and shame, struggling to believe that you really are forgiven, that you are truly set free? Is it your hope? As you survey your life and you see nothing to hold on to, to believe in, do you think it's too late? It was 1741 and an old man was walking through the streets of London. Uh, and this old man was George Frederick Handel. And at this point he was 
angry at his life. His mind kept on going back to the time uh, when he was famous. He had the applause of royalty uh, and the elite of London. But now he's, he was full of despair and hopelessness about the uh, future. The applause is long gone. Other, others had taken his place and all he could feel possessing him was the envy of that. Added to that a cerebral hemorrhage and meant the right side of his body was paralyzed and he couldn't write, he couldn't write his music anymore. And the doctors given him no hope for recovery. And even as he did slowly begin to recover, he faced another setback. Queen Caroline of England, who was his biggest supporter, just died. And England faced really hard economic times and the heating of these large auditoriums for kind of so music was not permitted. And so all his, his performances were all cancelled. And he began to wonder where God was. And he, all he could see as he walked the dark streets of London was despair and hopelessness for George Frederick Handel. It was all gone. It was all too late. And then one night as he sort of returned from one of these long, dark walks, he, he sort of got back home and he found somebody waiting for him. And it was a guy called Charles Jennings. And this guy explained he just finished writing a text, a musical for something which was covering both the Old and New Testaments. And he believed that Handel was the guy who was going to write the music for it. And Handel wasn't interested. All he could see was his despair and hopelessness. But this guy shoved the script under his nose and he started reading it. And as he read it, he, he read phrases that seemed to speak of his own life. He read... He was despised, rejected of men. He looked for someone to have pity on him, but there was no man. He read this until he came to a phrase further down near the end of it. And he finally stopped on these words that said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And at that moment, something snapped in him. And he picked up his pen and the music flowed through him. The first half of it took him six days to write. The second half took him seven days. And many wolves remembered that when the Handel's Messiah was first sung uh, in London and the hallelujah chorus was kind of sort of I'm sort of singing out King George II was so moved that he stood to his feet and since then everybody stands to their feet as the hallelujah chorus is sung out in praise to our God and these are those words of the hallelujah chorus that that um um, it repeated many times that inspired a hopeless old man in the depths of his despair and hopelessness Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever, king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah, it's not too late. It's not beyond the prayer. The Lord reigns. If God's spirit can take dry bones and raise up a living army, if he can physically raise from death um, Jesus, and he's not the only one who has, but if he can do that, and if he can bring hope to a hopeless old man, he can raise what is dead in your life. God loves impossible situations. He sometimes seems to wait until the end of our resources when people are not just dead but there's a whole family of them. When the bones are not just dry, they're very dry. And he does it so people will know that he has done it. No one else could have done it but he three times in this passage he says, I will do this so you will know that I am Lord. You will know that I have done it. 
And I believe God is reminding you that the more improbable your situation, the more impossible it looks like, bizarrely, the closer you are to restoration and revival. He sometimes needs to wait until the bones are so dry, utterly dry, before he starts pulling together skeletons and living bodies. You know, it's so timely it's, that it's, a, it's really a fluke that, that we are doing baptisms today on Pentecost Sunday. Baptisms are a living illustration of God's redemption and restoration. In the waters of baptism, we go under the water as a sign of our death and we raise up as a sign of new life. It's a living illustration of Ezekiel 37. God can take anything that is dead and bring it back to life. My time is nearly up. The message of Ezekiel 37 is that it's not too late. Whatever the landscape of your life is like, it's not too late. In the hands of God, restoration is possible. Revival can be accomplished. An army can be raised up from a valley of dry bones. This is true for the church in general, but do you know what is true for you and those who you worry over and weep over and pray over? For the prodigal, for the backslider, for the son or daughter or grandchild who has wandered far from God, for the relationship that looks dead beyond restoration, for the spiritual life that has been deadened by doubt and distraction and busyness. Restoration is possible. Revival can be accomplished. An army can come from a valley of dry bones. The Spirit of God can do this impossible thing.